Do we have any feedback, Joe? We do. We had an email uh, from a listener who would like us to talk about um, some corporate law. This is listener Michael, and he would like us to explore some of the interesting issues about the fluidity of the corporate form in American law, the way that uh, we have this general law of corporations, which allows people to create uh, entities like that. And I think it is an interesting issue. Uh, and it's one that, you know, Hobby Lobby, a case we talked about, you know, touches on the corporate form and uh, the complexities of, with religious liberty and also those sorts of issues that, that uh, relate to uh, the use of the corporate form. I think it'd be fun to have a corporate law scholar on to talk yeah. to us about that. Yeah, there, that could be really interesting. We, we know a bunch that we should do that. We we just ha- it hasn't been on the agenda yet, right? Corporations are people, my friend. <laughs> today, yes, they are. Thank you, Mitt. Today it's going to be states are people, my friend. Mm, right? Yeah. Um. And any other feedback? That was the. That's the only piece of email that I remember receiving. Maybe you know that we got some tweets that I don't know about. Um. Yeah. Uh, we we um. Well, should we? There's a lot of. Uh, is, is there any follow up on the kind of Vladek Dorf, Lederman, and I'll put my name in there. Turner controversy. So, so I there was not an that update. I'm aware of. Yeah, there was. Michael Dorf posted the thing. Posted his. Oh, update. that's been since we we haven't mentioned that. No, I thought we talked about that last no, time. He was going to. Last time we oh. mentioned he was. He had he had, he had contacted me by email to say he was preparing. Oh, that's a response, right. right? That's right. And um, yeah, well, the big spanking, and I, as I told you, I was just getting ready to make popcorn and watch. <laughs> uh, the big spanking never happened. No, because it was mainly it was about... a continuation of very measured, uh, very uh, nuanced discussion yeah. of the continuing complexities of that federal courts issue. And now, now we hear in the background the screaming of Nicholas Georgiakopoulos <laughs> and his predecur that we not launch into a federal courts <laughs> diatribe. He mentioned something again. about the yeah, Michael Dorf po- posted something about the Danforth case. So it was a, it was it didn't really touch you know everything that I talked about in the post. But he, no, that's uh, he true. but he did say in the comments that he was preparing to post again. So it's it's oh, not okay. over. I think it's not right. over. Well, it's much good. to much to um, our listeners' <laughs> pleasure. This is a. Uh, uh, it's not quite over yet. Um, nothing on the Ebola episode, though. Nope. Not I think that people I'm... were too scared to email in. You're, you look disinterested. No, I, not, we don't really have the energy today, do we, Joe? I'm, I, I'm... I got to tell you, I got to be in my bonnet. You do have a bee in your bonnet. Yeah. Okay. What's the bee? Well, let's stop all this falderall then and talk about the bee in your bonnet. But you say the word falderall in every episode. I do not. Yes, you do. Every episode. Listeners, can listener we please, challenge. Can we, listener challenge. Send Christian a list of the 37 episodes in which I did not say that. Oh, boy, I need this coffee today. So, um, What's the bee in your bonnet? Out with it. Now nah, we're, we're, we're let it buzz it's, around it's, the room. It's today's main topic. It's today's, main topic. it's today's main topic. Oh. So um, a couple other things. You know, so, so one of the people who had tweeted us, and I didn't mention it last time, I just kind of mentioned uh, generally that some people were hugely in favor of these federal courts things. One of them was Josh Lee on Twitter. Um, who said, among other things, he says, mark me down in favor of more discussions straight out of Hart and Wexler. <laughs> so I think, Dramatic readings of Hart and Wexler. I just want to get the first edition and just read pages out of it into the, into the record. <laughs> We've got our record here that we're making. Famous we federal to- courts treatises. So, um, uh, so there are listeners who demand the nerdy technical talk. 
And they will get more and more over the years as we do this. Will they? Absolutely. But but the reason I brought up Listener Barbara a second ago, partly, was because she was like, I listened to those episodes. She even listened to them twice. Which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Not uh, a lawyer. What an not, act of love and not, charity. Not, not been to law school. and But she says, you know, I know that I'm not really the audience for the show. And I think both of our hearts just sank when we heard that. Yeah, because in our view, she and many people like her are very much the audience for the show. Exactly. Laws for everybody, right, Joe? Right. Laws for everybody. So uh, I think those shows are great, I, um, and careful listening, I think, will be rewarded, because the, the, both the guests, Vladek and Dwarf, are just fantastic, fantastic. and you'll learn a lot from them. Totally. Uh, so, you know, it may not... We certainly learned a lot. Well... And may, if we can learn a lot, lots of people can learn a lot. I'm not sure they... I'm There's not sure. always something for a lot of people That's to true. learn. That's true. That's true. I'm just saying maybe Michael Dwarf thinks maybe I could have learned a little bit more. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out in the in the next yeah. week if he he under delivered on that on the spanking issue. Maybe it was you. You were the one who was in, convinced that's what it would be. Uh, yeah. We'll see in a follow. up I was promised a good I'm wood shedding, to- and I feel <laughs> let down. And then okay, now here's here's the big one though. Um, this was a tweet so great that I I promised that we would rename one of our mics for oh, this. Yes, guy. we have to rename it a microphone. That's right. Yes, and um, I'm going to give you a chance, Joe. So this is uh, on, on Twitter, uh, via Twitter. Another law professor, though, I think Pepperdine. Uh, Derek, mm-hmm. I'll, I'm going to give you that one for free. First okay. name's Derek. Second name, M-U-L-L-E-R. How would you pronounce that, Joe? M-U-L-L-E-R. That's right. Um, I would say Muller. Mm. Uh, mm. I think if it had an umlaut over the U, I might say Mueller. Mm-hmm. Or if it were M-U-E-L-L-E-R, I might say Mueller. Mm-hmm. But you think Mueller. But I, that would be my guess. Rhyming with duller. Yeah. Yes. You're correct. Or with the donut. I can't believe it, that you're correct. Hmm? I can't believe you're correct. I can't either. Are you sure? <laughs> How yes, do you know? Because I asked him. Oh, you took investigative steps. Yes. Yes. I asked him. I, I said, does it rhyme with fueler or duller? And he says duller, which is the way my students would describe my teaching. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> you can tell he's he's the perfect listener for the show. But but he he tweeted to us and said, uh, "It's not that I could listen to oral argument, discuss legal case books and typography for hours and on on end." Dot dot dot. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> perfect listener, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so we've renamed one of our microphones the Muller mic. Okay. And it is the one you are talking into right now, Joe. Hmm. That's wow, the Mueller mic. I'm going to be even more respectful than yeah, you usual of well, the recording equipment. You have a you have a sacred bond, a sacred bond to our to our listeners. Excellent. Um, you know, so there you go. I don't know what so else. So what's the B in your bonnet? Feels like there's something else, Joe. Buzz, oh buzz, yeah, buzz. did you know there's an umlaut in Turner? Really? Mm-hmm. O- over which vowel is it located? The R. Umlauts are not used over consonants, are they? Weird, right? Yeah. Hmm. Do you know that we're up for a Peabody, Joe? <laughs> I haven't brought this up in a while. I wanted yeah, to bring this up I, with you I, today. And I had not missed it, honestly. <laughs> do you remember the episode with Tom Goldstein? I do. Yeah. Do you remember before we recorded that show, you begged me not to bring up the Peabody thing? <laughs> Did I really? Yeah, because he had actually won a Peabody. <laughs> Yeah, and that's when we met him over that right. We met him at lunch, and I think you were convinced that I was going to make some crack about the Peabody to a guy who'd actually Which won a Peabody. Did. Didn't you make some crack? about I it? I don't think I did. Oh, it's not in that episode. I think I made a crack about you know had he was he able to calm down and not be so nervous, and did he feel like he'd finally made it? 
because of us, because, because of, of getting us, on yeah. our show instead. Yeah, of but the, I didn't. Right. I didn't joke about the Peabody to guy who'd won a Peabody. But you did joke about it on some other episode. I joke. I just said that we are up for a Peabody. Yes. Which in is other words, you absolutely in, true. You engaged in rampant Peabody folderall. No. Oh my god. No. We're up for a Peabody, Joe. You know, I I don't know if we'll win it. I, I you know I don't know. Oh boy. Sounds today. Am I right? This is the show that is ill-fated, wouldn't you say? It's it's star-crossed. We recorded a little bit last night. Timing didn't quite work out. Also, it was just, yeah, it was not, like I said, not in a good mood. And then today, we, we were having a good conversation, weren't we? We were for quite a while. And then, boom, poof, it's all gone. Colonel panic. It's, you know, technology's not perfect. It's not right to th- expect it to be perfect. Uh, I expect perfection. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed. I I expect perfection. Um, boy, we're going to do it all again, aren't we? No. We're going to do it all over again. Nope. I'll leave right now. <laughs> I, I am going to... And re- that way I can... Because that, that way I can make sure we don't do it again. <laughs> so, so don't test me on this. <laughs> I, I am going to read this feedback again, though. We are going to do that. Because this is a listener who wrote in. And we, we've already talked about this. Now, now, we don't have to do all the feedback. Because some of that was from yesterday. That'll be, just be spliced in. But, but I do feel like listener Paul who has quite, wait, waited quite a while for us to get to his feedback, uh, deserves, um, deserves to hear what we think. And he will hear what you think. <laughs> well, he thanks you. It was lovely. I loved getting this email. I sent him a nice reply at the time. Thanks, Joe, for repeatedly trying to work the word typeface into the discussion. Alas, your valiant efforts were for naught. Talking about uh, our show with Matthew Butterick. A great show. Yeah. That was a great episode. Yeah. And, and he, he, um, he even uses the phrase grr in there. He had some problems with it, didn't he? <laughs> You're the one looking at it. You tell me. Oh, my God. You don't want to talk about this again, do you? No, but, but you... What's so funny okay. is when you ask questions with this pretense of caring what, how I answer... I do care how you it, answer. No, you don't, because you always just plunge ahead and do what you want to do anyway. So don't ask me. Just do it. <laughs> I, I mean, know, seriously. I want to know what you think about this email. No, you don't, because you already know what I think of it. I Actually, I... Because we talked about it. Yeah, but I don't know that we... Um, I, I'm not sure. So you, you, I, here's what I remember you're saying. Can I be both sides of this, since you don't want to redo this? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't stop you from doing anything. That's perfectly clear. <laughs> he says it's a. Uh, um, uh, he was having lunch the other day, and even and he commented about to the wait staff about a mistake that he thinks that we made, and that even they knew the difference. And what difference is that? The difference between a font and a typeface. This drove him nuts. Drove him absolutely nuts. And a typeface. I, I guess. What's the difference, Joe? What's the difference between a typeface and a font? Well, I'm no expert, but uh, typeface is uh, the the word you use to refer to the entire family of different type sizes of a of a single um, style of lettering. Right. Whereas the font is a particular size of that typeface, and may or may not. I mean, I've heard this before. 
goes back to the the days in which you know the uh, the font referred to the actual physical embodiment, the thing that was actually stamped onto the page, usually metal, um, but I guess sometimes wood too. Is that mm. right? Yeah, sometimes wood. Sure. Um, so the so, so the font was the you know were these little you know the the metal casting that was yeah. You know, so it's the difference between a genus and a species. I suppose that's right. I suppose that's right. And and he says for Christian's sake. Because you kept using the word font, uh, I'm just, and I use the word typeface. But but when, why we, when you we know were we talk all the t- we talk all the time, and I refer to typefaces to refer to the style and font to refer to the whole thing. But yes. you know, but Matthew Butterick was referring to these things as fonts, and most people do. And I've got no problem with most people referring to these things as fonts. I'm not right. a, I'm not a pedant about it, Normal. or as you say, pedant. Unbelievable! <laughs> You're even making the same <laughs> stupid jokes. I would give anything. <laughs> almost anything to recover that lost recording rather than having to bad enough i had to live through that the first time good lord if you're gonna make me live through it again you've never heard me say the word pedant pronounced pedant until just now i didn't say pedant i said pedant i i, I thought that's how you say it i thought that's how you say it but he says for christian's sake verdana for example is a typeface verdana 12 point is a font there, don't you feel helped? He gave you some assistance. Yeah, I, I, I knew. He says just because it's called font on Word's typeface selection menu doesn't mean it's correct. Mm-hmm. You know, that must have really burned when he was he was equating you to a command in the Word Microsoft Word menu hierarchy. That that yeah. that, pr- that pretty yeah that probably burned when you read that. Um, I, I look, I, I I appreciate Paul's. Hu- I don't, I, you know, to tell you the truth, like I said uh, in the part that was deleted, in the part that we lost due to technical difficulties, um, I think Paul is probably not still a listener to the show after the federal courts maelstrom that we just. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just guessing, but in it, just in case Paul is a listener to the show, I I love your feedback. I I did know the difference between font and typeface, and I um. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm not as. But, but if he couldn't tell that from the episode, it's course, great of him that please, he took yeah. the time to point out something that he thought would be helpful, right? Especially when to do so was to applaud my correct usage and, and to castigate next? me and to gast and to castigate me. Yeah. What's next? You enjoyed that, I know. I did. What's next? You enjoyed it the first time around. Loved it. What's next? So, do you want to skip the discussion altogether of the cert grant? Yes, because hmm. we're going to do a whole other show about that. Well, we had a good conversation about that, though, didn't we? It was we? great. It's great. It was a great... Um, it really uh, whet my appetite to have that episode <laughs> later. This is the uh, the, this is the lawsuit which is attempting basically to gut Obamacare um, on statutory interpretation grounds. And uh, so we, we... Just trust us. We had a good conversation about that. Hey, did you ever hear about this podcast that was the unrecorded podcast, speaking of things like that, Joe? The what? The unrecorded podcast. I don't know what it was called exactly, but... Basically, they it was just show notes. They they had a conversation. They produced show notes, and they never released the audio from it. <laughs> Have you ever heard of such a thing? And they did that week after week. I, I don't know how long it went on. That's strange. <laughs> it's a little bit strange. Um, wow. Yeah, that's weird. Just show notes. And by the way, um, if you're using Overcast, uh, whatever podcast client you're using, our show notes should appear right there in your podcast client. If you're listening on the web. Uh, obviously, you know you're at the page probably where the uh, you can see all of the show notes. Um, sometimes they're more extensive than others. In Overcast, some the one quirk with that that maybe some listeners might you, you have to kind of pull up on the on the album art on the artwork, 
and yeah, it reveals all. Yeah, because yeah. if you don't do that, I can see people maybe not thinking to do that. So we're not realizing it's there. Yeah, because last week's show, which I, I really enjoyed with uh, with Fuzzle Khan, I almost said Fuzzle. We we cleared that up last week too, we didn't did. we? Uh, all, all about the Ebola uh, crisis. I thought was we have great show notes for that. Episode. I, yeah, it took me you a long a time to put those together. It's a, the extensive show notes. If you want to know anything about that, I think you go back and you can kind of look at those things. Um, the one thing I wanted to add though is the Hank Greeley post on the faculty lounge going through the uh the kind of factual history and the legal implications for this nurse uh wilcox right hickox hickox oh yeah yeah how could i get that wrong uh really great post uh, i'll link that up as well shall we go on though joe oh, that'd be i great. cannot believe that we lost all that Ugh. it's like the perfect end it's like the it's like the swift kick to the groin to end the week <laughs> isn't it <laughs> and I, here I thought that the I, I thought that the cert grant was the swift kick to the groin, but it turns out no, it's uh, losing our entire recording. Yeah, mm. Mm. we did not. We we lost the recording up to the moment that we 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 had still not we had not really started talking about this marriage equality ruling no. all that much. No, so we lost very little about that. We, we so just, let's talk about that now. Yeah, and 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 trust and believe if this doesn't work. And I'm not going to do this forever, right? So I'm not going to stay here for until like tonight. No, I wouldn't. Let's do this now. Let's talk about it. And if we lose it, and if something goes wrong, we're never <laughs> doing an episode about it. Never. No, because seriously, you know, the most important thing, Joe, is that we don't inconvenience you. Correct. <laughs> I think that's every everyone will agree with that. And I'm here to make sure that that goal is reached. <laughs> um. Uh. The, the truth is, you've already been inconvenienced. Would you say? You put up with a lot. Oh, is that yes. what you say? <laughs> it's <laughs> part of the part of the burden that you have in 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 the production of this show is putting up with me. Would you say that's true? I it's it's all part of the overall texture of the experience. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we set this thing up before. That's all we'd done was was to set the groundwork yeah. for this case. And and so the, what we're going to talk about this week is this uh, Judge Sutton's opinion for a uh, three judge panel with one dissent in the Sixth Circuit. And this Sixth Circuit opinion is the first uh, federal court, uh, the first uh, federal appeals court to uphold a marriage ban, a uh, state marriage ban, um, you know, against gay marriage. Uh, in, the, in the modern era, and I think this is where basically we, we quit, uh, it quit on us, Joe, is that we were kind of making a distinction between kind of the, the post-Lawrence and especially post-Windsor era and, yeah. and maybe what went before. And we were, I was, we were both saying, or at least I was saying that that I was not aware of whether there were any like federal district court or appellate court opinions on this issue from say, you know, pre Lawrence. I mean, maybe there are way back when I, I really don't know. Um, but certainly this is the, this is the very first either state Supreme court or court of appeals um, decision upholding a state marriage ban, which means essentially it's the first one that creates a kind of split in an, in an interpretation of federal law among courts from whom direct appeal to the supreme court is is i I won't say possible because you can go there are other weird routes but it's but it's ordinary right yeah um and so you know the the thought is well the supreme court's going to take this case we we talked a little bit um already just you and i about how likely it is that maybe the sixth circuit would reconsider in bank or in bonk as paul said that was once one other thing that listener paul commented on joe was pronunciation Uh, there yeah yes uh, and really, on bonk, I guess. Yeah, it, 
Right. Or, or as you say, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so there, there, there is at least the possibility that the six that this panel decision will be taken up by the entire Sixth Circuit, which would come the other way, and then happen. there would not be a split. But as you say, you say this won't happen, and so why why do you think this won't happen? Just to- well, so, uh, so uh, the the losers here are the married couples, uh, the couples who seek to be. Uh, married equally under the law and uh, it's really up to them to decide what to do next procedurally yeah Uh, do they ask the full sixth circuit to reconsider the case do they ask the supreme court to review the case what do they do and and they've some of them have indicated they want to go to the supreme court right so some of them have already said i mean within as in like within the last 48 hours have indicated they are going to go directly to the supreme court yeah now, unless all of them do that, well, so someone could file a rehearing petition, fine. Um, the Sixth Circuit uh, is uh, numerically dominated by conservative Republican appointees. The likelihood that they would vote to take the case in order to change its outcome is low. And, and they can do that, as I understand it, without, at least I know in the Second Circuit, I assume also in the Sixth Circuit, they can take the case in bank even even if the parties didn't. They can. That's within the federal rules of appellate procedure that provide for that. Um, But I I think that's even less likely than doing it as a consequence of having been asked by one of the losing parties. So I just don't see that occurring. I think the lawyers for the married couples who seek to have their marriages fully recognized by law are going to promptly, uh, they're not even going to use the entire time they have available to write their cert petition. They're going to very quickly go to the Supreme Court and ask the Supreme Court to grant review. Okay, so you think it's going to go to the Supreme Court at this point, and this this guarantees it? Yeah, without without further uh, without further action by the Sixth Circuit. Yeah. Now, what do you think of this? Is what we're going to spend some time on uh, Judge Sutton's opinion, and 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 if this had been just any old uh, decision which upheld a marriage ban. Um, on grounds that plaintiffs were urging. I, to me, there's something about this decision which made me want to talk about it this week. Well, it's week. written in a very strange way. Um, and, you know, when we talked about Judge Posner's opinion um, it, for the Seventh Circuit... Which was uh, also quite idiosyncratic. Correct. Yeah. I think this, this opinion, is, uh, which is written just for two of the judges, not for all three, because um, uh, there's a dissenting opinion in this case, um, but like uh, Judge Posner's opinion, which is quite idiosyncratic, uh, this majority opinion is also written in a very, I think it's very strange. Um, you know, the way it starts, and I don't remember the precise words, but it's, it's, it starts by saying, you know, this is about how things, this is about social change, right? Yeah. And it's about how we engage in social change. Um, and in a way... And legal change. What's so surprising about that from, a, from someone who's reputed to be a conservative a scholar and jurist is that <laughs> that is the ultimate to me in not being conservative with a, with a lowercase c. Um, being conservative is deciding the case before you. Yeah, it's a. Str- right? it's it's, a, it's yeah. you, I'm, we're here to resolve disputes between particular parties. What's your claim? Is that claim a legally valid claim? And instead, you see this opinion as not ideologically motivated, although it might be. I mean. All of us are ideologically yeah. motivated, but but really like structurally motivated. It has in mind a certain structure of 
the way things are decided and, and it imposes just, that on this case in yeah, order, yeah as sort of an but it, and it does it explicitly it's a sort of open letter about the judicial role in socio-legal change uh in the in the particular context of who can and cannot have access to the uh, civil institution of marriage and it's an opinion that um as i said in the last recording um it's it's only been out a little while, a few days, but uh, but I've read it twice now, and uh, the majority, and and the second time I read it, it was considerably less sort of persuasive, interesting, and coherent than the first time. Yeah, it, it, this it, is not it is not aging well. <laughs> you, the more you think about it, the worse it gets. In my, in that's how I've experienced yeah, I, it. I think it is um, as I've said to you. It's a well written opinion. It has lots of, I think, interesting ideas that I would just love to debate with a colleague or with, you know, or, or with you, or I'd love to have or, you know, with anyone. Um, and there, there are lots of things on which maybe I would even agree in here, lots of kind of smaller points I would agree on. But somehow the whole witch's brew is considerably less than uh, its individual parts. Um, and and in particular, I think the, the fundamental... Um, Organ- the the organizing principle of this opinion is anathema to what I think of as our whole modern constitutional tradition. I think the the core ideas in here actually would repudiate Loving, Brown. I mean, other it just stands in stark contrast to those cases, and that's in addition to the way that it conceives of. Um, decisions promoting marriage equality uh, with this kind of distinction between eligibility and the definition of marriage. But we'll get into that a little bit more. I know that you and I don't exactly agree about that, but I think that rhetorical move is um, is really destructive of kind of rational thinking about this, uh, about about the issue. You look like you're thinking. I am thinking. I, you're, you're right. I don't. I don't see as clearly as you do the the notion that the trope about redefining marriage uh, versus restricting those uh, who are eligible to participate in it is is as corrosive as you think it is. But I, Let, let's get to that as, in a second. Let's get yeah, to that in a second. It struck me that way. Um, go go ahead. Yeah. But the but the other the, the sort of basic. Um, so the the rhetoric here is again because he casts the decision. You know, this is a case about change and how we change. And, uh, and which so was which was my blog post. It was about the, in my take on Posner's opinion was that if we look at that opinion, what we observe is the way that law actually changes, right? Because there are certain arguments that become unavailable, right? But it's not cast as it's not self consciously cast right. as you know. Judge Posner does not write. This is an opinion about change. Of course not. That, that's, he he simply. Right. Enacts a moment of change, right? He he carries that. He does, enact is the wrong word. He's not a legislature. He 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 lives. He's embodying what it is like to live in a moment of change because he's he's accepting and rejecting arguments, correct? Based on kind of what's available now to us, what we're willing to accept now. Yeah, and, and there are arguments we were willing to accept at the time of Bowers versus Hardwick that we are not willing to accept now. And that's just a description of how legal actors, in fact, change their approach yeah. to legal reasoning. But Judge Sutton is talking about something different. Yes, and self-consciously so, and right. engaging in a in a discussion about a theory of popular constitutionalism, which says that uh, as to the as to some claims of equality, uh, the the right thing to do is to allow the people to 
come to their own conclusion and vote on them, uh, rather than uh, to have judges in the guise of resolving legal claims uh, rule on them in that way. And this is, um, you know, a very old idea in terms of the the how to reckon with this the notion of judicial review the prob what you can think of as a, a somewhat problematic aspect of it or or wondering the degree to which it is problematic um, to have unelected judges declare uh, some law unconstitutional um, this is the we talked about this when we talked about the Caroline Products case right the you know is it economic legislation is it some other kind of legislation might that change the way that you think it's um, should be scrutinized, uh, etc. Right? These are all very old problems in the yeah. United States uh, in how judges approach constitutionality as an issue. Um, but it is a very it, um, yeah, uh, to it, to just sort of trot out this idea that well, you know, wouldn't it be better if people voted uh, on whether or not other people should be treated as full human beings? Yeah, it's almost like yeah, it's very we'll weird get to that and he has specific lines that I want to ask you about when we get to them. But but he's it's almost like it's it's like fake equality if it's imposed by judges, and it's real equality is only when we kind of agree, you know, uh, person to person to accept one another, and that's the kind of thing which can be realized through democratic processes rather than through uh, judicial ones. And and in that sense, it's a rejection of of. <laughs> Exactly. It's a, re- it's a rejection of, if not, you know, maybe someone would make want to make the argument that it's centuries, but it's at least the rejection of decades. Yes. Of of very mainstream thinking about the federal judicial role, right? In upholding the uh, the central claims to individual rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. I it's think just that, very. I, I think the core the core idea is a repudiation of Brown and Loving. It really does seem that way. I mean, I, I was thinking that this morning. I was like, yeah, you know, this, and which is why Judge Daughtry's dissent, which tries to lay out, in part, the sense in which what, what you have just said is true, um, is, is, so, um, is, is so interesting. Because she, she and, I, and I think she's right to say, this is really calling into question something very basic about what judges have agreed to do when they accept the role of being a judge. Yeah. And you, you yeah. know, you can't just say, "Well, I yeah, I'm here to be a judge." But basically, when it comes to individual rights guaranteed by the Constitution, I just need to do my best imitation of a potted plant, right? And and wait for something else to happen. Like what? That, and it's, <laughs> that doesn't right. sound right. And and if if indeed, like if if Judge Sutton in his heart of hearts doesn't think that uh, the Fourteenth Amendment or or um, uh, requires marriage equality well, he, I, he plainly doesn't think right that. right but, i mean he plainly thinks it does not require but in some that. sense he doesn't fully own it right i mean right because he's um with this refrain about you know just wouldn't it be better to put this to a vote right he that's he, how we should change but see this is what's so fu- i think fundamentally misguided about the rhetorical frame of the opinion that he himself has created right this to su- to begin the opinion can we can you read do you have it can yeah you read right like can you just read the first like line or two because this okay, is the yeah. way, like, the whole thing essentially goes off the rails in the first two lines. Yeah, I just got to get past the um, 112,000 parties <laughs> or, or uh, <laughs> lawyers who were involved in this case. Uh, this is a case about change. 
and how best to handle it under the United States Constitution. From the vantage point of 2014, it would now seem, the question is not whether American law will allow gay couples to marry, it is when and how that will happen. That would not have seemed likely as recently as a, de- as a dozen years ago. For better, for worse, or for more of the same, marriage has long been a social institution defined by relationships between men and women. So long defined, the tradition is measured in millennia, not centuries or decades. So widely shared, the tradition until recently has been adopted by all governments and major religions of the world. And then more about change. Just go back to that first line again. Yeah, this is a case about change and how best to handle it under the United States Constitution. Yeah, see, that that is so, like, (laughs) what's, what's so, um, what's so odd about that? is it it seems like and and it's sort of a paradox on the one hand it seems like oh wow this is sort of sophisticated he's kind of grasping what we all know to be the truth behind this dispute yeah but it turns out he's actually pushing the dispute away and he's not grasping the core of it he's running from the core of it right by by talking about it in this very non-judicial manner yeah right no actually judge sutton what the case is about is a claim brought by some people who think they are and should be married in the eyes of the law, and they have an explanation for why they think the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States requires state governments to acknowledge that reality. Yeah. That's what that's actually what the case is about. And so and that claim is either good or not. And so why don't you adjudicate that? Yeah, in in a way his options because you say he doesn't own it, and I think that's the way in which you're not owning it. Right. When you try to dress it up as a, this is, oh, it's all about change. Well, it's... <laughs> Very weird. Well, I mean, it is, I mean, I think it's it's good for a judge to reflect on questions such as, am I, what is my appropriate role here? What is my of course appro- it is. appropriate institutional role in deciding this? And there's a... And it's know, human to think about consequences. Of course. Um, and, and so why... Why well, try not to? I wouldn't encourage but, someone to try so not his to. Option- but, but to. But to have that be the frame for actually explaining one's judgment is a different thing, I think. His his options, uh, I think, are, like, you can say, I don't have the authority to resolve this question because of this earlier Supreme Court case, which I want you to talk about because you know more about this than I do, uh, which, which basically this earlier Supreme Court non-case or non-decision. Yeah. Um, so I don't have the authority because I'm bound in that way. He could be making an opinion, and in fact he does, that the judiciary does not have the authority to do this at all. That's a different thing, right? Uh, or you might say that we do have the authority to resolve this, and we resolve it negatively. In other words, the Constitution doesn't require that. I mean, right. those are slightly different things, right? Like, one is... Even and the, if and the this, last of them is actually the more sound. Because the contention that the judiciary doesn't have the power to do that is it just goes against so many decisions on so many issues about individual rights and constitutionality of state right. s- statutes and state provisions that it is errant nonsense to assert at this late stage that the judiciary doesn't have the power to resolve this issue. That's crazy talk yeah. in, in modern life. It just is. Sorry. So the third one is actually the soundest. We have the power to resolve it, and we resolve it negatively. For for reasons that's right for yeah. reasons and here they yeah. are I mean yeah. that's not it's not that isn't the conclusion I I reach yeah we'll get to, get to this uh, first but, one but, because- but you could at least say that and be think and be and be presenting something that seems lawyerly well when you and I talked earlier you mentioned that that one 
one one possible legitimate way to resolve this case, although arguably, you know, you would argue wrongly, um, would would be to say, hey, there's this earlier case, uh, Baker versus Nelson, right? Yep. Which is the Supreme Court uh, received from um, a, a state court judgment about um, uh, a challenge to a marriage ban. But this was back in, when was it, in the 70s, early 70s? Or yeah, 60s? 1972, I okay. think, is the uh, Supreme Court decision. And the Supreme Court issues a one-line decision. The summary affirmance. Same, but, of a state Supreme Court decision considering at length and rejecting yeah. the arguments that the Constitution re, uh, required the state of Minnesota to recognize as equal this marriage between two men. And I don't have the exact language, but so you can correct me, but it said that uh, that they're not going to—how do they say it? But that, that there was no substantial federal question. Correct, which is the way of saying we summarily affirm. The, 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 the appeal, because it was an appeal, not a discretionary review under a statute that no longer exists, we're bringing an appeal from a state Supreme Court decision adjudicating a federal constitutional question. Right. Whether the state Supreme Court struck down the state statute or upheld it, didn't matter under this statute. You could take an appeal, either party. Uh, here it's the married couple. Um, trying to get the state to recognize their marriage. Um, and you bring the appeal, and the court resolves it uh, with, basically, as I said, a summary affirmance. Is that because you have an appeal as of right under that correct. statute? Correct. This was in a... Correct. The so statute the Supreme Court gave did, you a right of appeal. So the Supreme Court did not have the authority that it has in almost every case now. There are other cases of original... There, there are some cases where it doesn't... Yeah. A discretionary authority to decide whether to hear or not and in our prior you know in our in the episode with anthony christ as we mentioned um uh these all of the cert denials you know certiorari this is the the writ that the supreme court will issue from um you bring a case from to a, itself. a judgment yeah to right. bring a case to itself and and it and usually it denies in almost every case it denies saying hey you know the judgment below stands sometimes it will grant it and that's how we get to hear uh, almost all of the cases before the supreme court and What's clear is that those denials of certiorari are not uh, precedential, right? In other words, they don't they don't bind any lower courts at all. They they express no judgment of the court, and they are not precedential. In contrast to these summary affirmances from this earlier statute, which was eliminated in 1988, um, where even though it's doing the same thing, even though it, basically that one line sentence was a denial of cert. But no, because it wasn't. that's it, it was it was in, a conclusion in, that there was not an, enough merit in the appeal for the court to hear it further. So it heard it enough to know that there was no right. reason to engage in plenary consideration. Right. And of, and of course, so it's, what, so it's in fact right. not the but same. Of course, thing. But of course, what I mean is that had that case arisen today, the court would not have taken up the case. And issued an affirmance because it didn't raise a substantial federal question. It would have denied cert. Yes, there's, because there was a different procedural framework, today. right? And so Correct. the Supreme Court was basically saying the same thing that it says when it denies cert, which is we're not going to hear this. However, it has yeah, a different you, effect because of the nature of the statute. And and given that it has such a different effect, it is in that sense not even remotely the same thing. Oh my god! So you can you can keep saying it is, but but indeed it is not. Because a big because a big part of what it is is its effect, right? I, that, that, that's right. And so this is the reason there's a debate about the about exactly the uh, weight that should be given to this so-called precedent, right? Is because of what people think the Supreme Court says, and there is some debate about how. 
unprecedented it is. You know, the, yeah. There's a the, jurisprudence about these sorts of determinations, which which the court used to make, and it doesn't really make them anymore because the procedure has been eliminated. It doesn't. It doesn't have them. And so, you know, we've got lots of courts of appeals now who have issued opinions uh, and judgments striking down marriage bans despite the existence of this old case. Correct. And had that case been on the merits, a fully argued you know, opinion, uh, I don't think you would have seen the same. Uh, you, you might have seen the courts of appeals question whether that was still good law. You might, I think they would have looked very different. However, I think what, what's going on is that the court of appeals recognize that this one-line opinion, despite the effect given to it by uh, the jurisdictional statutes at right. that point, uh, was the equivalent of a cert denial. No. Um, what they're recognizing is that the Supreme Court itself, in a case called Hicks against Miranda uh, in 1975 or 76, says the Supreme Court itself explains the fact that these summary affirmances, uh, these one-line decisions, um, have a particular weight and status, and that they, although they are precedent, they are a decision on the merits, um, they can be undermined by subsequent developments in the law. Right. So that lower courts are, be- are required to follow them mm-hmm. until the court overturns them or until they're undermined by subsequent developments. That's what Hicks against Miranda says. Right. Okay? Yeah. So, so no, if, the, if, well, let me put it this way. If a lower court judge thinks, oh, this is, I don't need to worry about this. This is tantamount to a cert denial. That person's that's just not, wrong. Right. That's not what I'm, that's not, of course, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but they, like they, they have, there is a certain subjective equivalence because the Supreme Court used those summary affirmances in the same way that it now uses cert denials. And both kinds of attitudes towards cases coming up kind of encompass the same concerns about affording precedential weight. And that is that these are not fully considered, fully argued uh, things and the Supreme Court simply can't operate if it has to hear every appeal raising a. Right. Uh, so, so it, in other words, and we can all applaud the prudence of eliminating this form of mandatory appeal, right. which the court figures out a way to duck. Right, but if right. It, better for exactly. the court to be view, to for everything to fully accord with the notion that it is in fact engaging in a decision about right. whether to further decide. And without that complete discretion, if it is viewed in every case that it essentially doesn't take up, either through the mechanism of saying through summary affirmance or now cert denial, if you, if you were to afford every one of those decisions precedential value, what a crazy quilt of federal law would result because the Supreme Court would be, no matter what it does, would be issuing a considered opinion in every case, uh, you know, I mean, not considered opinion in terms of the words, but like every cert denial or back then every summary affirmance would be considered to have the same weight as, as fully argued cases. And the, it, it's hard, it would be hard to attribute any rational intention to the Supreme Court in, because there are just so many of those cases. Do you know what I mean? I do. And so the, the, the case you describe where the Supreme Court is saying, yes, they're precedent, but they're not precedent in the same way. Was the Supreme Court trying to end up in a, maybe, I think, you know, just from, not, again, not knowing all this stuff, some, you can say I'm wrong, uh, but trying to end up in a similar place where we are now with certain denials, which is we're, we have to do these things. We can't exactly say they have no precedential weight because they are judgments. Um, right. And, um, but, you know, if things change, you can go a different way. Um, I, I think it's, it sounds to me like 
again, being naive about this, not having read enough cases, but it sounds to me like it was an effort at a time when it didn't have basically the power to deny cert in these cases. Maybe it did. I don't even know this, but uh, it sounded like it, to try to do something rational. And that's the problem with this case. It's a one-line uh, affirmance that doesn't really indicate any thought. But what's weird about it, too, is that we know, I think we know darn well that if the Supreme Court had taken cert in that case, it would have written uh, um, an opinion which looked even more paleolithic than the concurrence in Bowers, right? True. So it, it's kind of a weird situation where even though we don't, even though we don't think it should have precedential value to the same extent as a fully considered case, we know darn well what that considered yeah. case would have looked like, and it would have looked even worse. Yes. Right. Um. So anyway, this is a long aside, and I know it irritates you when I go down this particular aside because we've talked about it before. But uh, <laughs> Judge uh, Judge it is Sutton, an irony. <laughs> Judge Sutton, um, he says that this is controlling, right? And you think he should have stopped there? Well, he, he, I did think that last night. I've, I've I've reconsidered that idea. That that um, even on its own terms. Um, that would only control the case. And this Sixth Circuit decision is the pulling together of several cases yeah. from each of the constituent states in the circuit. Yeah. So that, that um, uh, e- even, even the, the strongest weight you can give to those one-line summary affirmances in Supreme Court, as Supreme Court precedent um, is they control precisely the same set of facts. Right, and I th- and I think these several challenges that the Sixth Circuit is adjudicating here in this appeal, um, only w- only one of them, maybe two of them, um, are the s- exact same set of facts. Right, I want to get married in this state. I ask for a marriage license. They turn me down. They won't let me get married. Right, that's Baker against Nelson. Mm-hmm. There are other challenges. There's, I got lawfully married in a state that recognizes same-sex marriage. I've now moved to this new state, and I want you to recognize my state validly celebrated somewhere else, validly solemnized somewhere else. Um, state says no. That's actually not Baker against Nelson. So Baker against Nelson can't control it right? as this one-line fit. So I think you could, you could resolve some of what's going on in the case using Baker against Nelson, but not all of it. Because... But one, the majority one, one doesn't parse it out this closely and right. fi- and cleanly, right? One, they don't one, say, "Oh, it's this like over here." This specific challenge from state X is controlled by Baker. Now that's done. Now let's go parse o- out only these right. other things because they're not. They're not. The majority is not handling this in a lawyerly, judgely way, where mm. we have a specific challenge brought by specific people who have a particular complaint. Yeah. Instead, it's that they're painting on this bigger, broader canvas. Yeah. Um, but it makes for sloppy stuff, I think. Yeah. So, so well, the, if, if, if we're doing that, why talk about Baker at all? If we're, if we're going to paint on this big canvas, I mean, why bother talking about Baker? Um, alternatively, if you do have to talk about Baker, it's because you think we're actually doing something much more small bore, which is adjudicating an individual case. Right. About a person who's being treated fundamentally unfairly if the 14th Amendment requires what they assert it to require. So it's like, which, <laughs> like, it's just weird. Do one, do the other. Don't do both. I, it's, yeah. Again, this opinion struck me as much stranger today than it did yesterday. Because <laughs> I'd thought about it more and I was like, this doesn't hang together. That's apparent. That's apparent. Okay, so let's, let's leave Baker behind and, and get to... 
um, the real issue. I, and I want to go through a couple of these things, but I, I, again, I think the, a fundamental problem with this opinion is loving, is that it just, it but we tri- mean loving against Virginia, loving a against Virginia, decision striking down the Virginia prohibition on interracial marriage. That's right. Which the Supreme Court struck down as invalid under the 14th Amendment uh, to the United States Constitution. Right. And as a denial of equal protection of the laws. And, and this opinion does a couple of things with respect to loving that I think are just hard to explain. Yes. One, the way that it technically um, distinguishes loving as about uh, striking down what it calls clearly unconstitutional eligibility requirements, whereas uh, bans on gay marriage um, are just attempting to keep in place a certain definition of marriage. This distinction between the eligibility requirements and definition or redefinition seems to me hopeless and weird. Uh, and and I think holding on grasping to uh, a rhetorical trope which has pervaded the gay marriage debate, um, this idea that... As a that, substitute for reasoning. Yeah. Because it, do, it, it doesn't actually hold It up. doesn't do anything. It's like you're attempting to redefine marriage, right? Of course, what we're arguing about is what counts as a marriage. Everybody agrees with that. Right. And you don't aid your argument by saying that we're trying to redefine it. I mean, So either, either loving against Virginia is every bit as much a case about redefining marriage, right. namely the sort of thing that could exist among people of different races rather than only between people of the same race. Right. Or you could say this case is every bit as much about eligibility. Namely, you're only eligible to marry a person of a different sex rather than of the same sex. Right. But you can reframe each one the other way. Exactly. Which, which suggests that's not actually going to be a helpful distinction. Right. And, and so that's the, <laughs> that's the narrow problem that it has with, with loving, I think. The broader problem that it has with loving is what I see is, in some, a complete rejection, right, of the idea that courts and the Constitution have any useful role to play uh, with respect to discrimination in marriage laws. Yes. And, and that kind of, this idea that majorities are it's in the best position. It's somewhat shocking when you actually pause and reflect When on you it. go through it, yeah, I think it is. And, and to me, I've got like... I, I highlighted uh, a number of passages in this opinion. We don't need to go through them all in order or anything like that. But but to, my highlights, I'll, I'll show that to you, Joe. It's like started oh, wow. on page seventeen yeah. of this opinion. We, we'll link it up. And and I found page seventeen to be the beginning of a part so kind of shocking in that kind of. The, it, and again, I don't have what I don't find shocking is an orientation toward structure an orientation toward saying, well, maybe I'm not in the best position to decide. These are all well-worn, by this point, kind of structural points that even judges will make you know, directly in an opinion these days. There's sure. nothing necessarily wrong with that. Yep. But, but listen to this. So, so he says, uh, he, he talks about the, the other decisions that courts have reached, uh, um, uh, striking down marriage bans. And they've done it on the Me, basis... Meaning these recent decisions. The recent decisions, yeah. yes, exactly. District courts, courts of appeals, and some state courts. Uh, they've looked at originalism, he says, rational basis review, animus, fundamental rights, suspect classifications, evolving meaning. These are all kind of the, um, the kind of legal tools courts have used to strike these bans down. He says the parties in one way or another have invoked them all in this particular case. Yeah. Not one of the plaintiff's theories, however, makes the case for constitutionalizing the definition of marriage and for removing the issue from the place it has been since the founding in the hands of state voters. Yeah. And that's the point where I, I needed to kind of get out the highlighter because I found it just 
shocking because it it denies it, that loving against Virginia ever happened. Ever existed. It's bizarre. I I I can't explain that. And that's and it's not the only case it denies. I mean, it denies because there are other cases that deal with the fundamental right to marry and state efforts Absolutely. to interfere with that fundamental yes. right. So it's this is pre New Deal. I mean, you know, this is the um there were cases about the fundamental right to marry. So you know, it's yeah. So it's just bizarre. I mean, it's out and out bizarre as an assertion of fact. It's not historically accurate, not even close. And the only way that it works, the way that is, it works is through this definition eligibility distinction. Correct. So, it ha- so read the sentence again. It, it, this particular sentence is not one of the plaintiff's theories, however, makes the case for constitutionalizing the definition of marriage and for removing the issue from the place it has been since the founding in the hands of state voters. So the, the phrase, the definition of marriage, is doing all the work. It's doing, yes. In that sentence. To and the degree is, that it's accurate at all, and I would contend it's not, to the degree that it is accurate, it's accurate because of this. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm in the middle of watching Bill Clinton's deposition tape. Depends what the meaning of is is, right? Mm. So this definition of he, he it, was right about that, you know. <laughs> the, the phrase the <laughs> I'm, defin- I'm quite serious. He was right about that, but you know, Fair whatever. Enough, but it is a, the, yeah. the, defi- the phrase, <laughs> the definition of marriage, is 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 you being used here as a term of art that you can rhetorically sort. You know, the, right. the cases that I don't want to say are wrongly decided. Because that would make me sound like some kind of total whack job. Right. And the cases that you want me to decide now that I don't want to. Right. That's why I say it's a rhetorical trope. Yeah. Because it, it does no work other than making it sound as though there's some difference. This is like a kind of a transcendental nonsense from Felix Cohen. In the age right. Of, you know, right? there's, there's, there's something called definition, which is like somehow disconnected from... Uh, from eligibility requirements, it seems yeah. to be, and that magic essence gets is held by the voters, right? And see, he has to do he he has a structural view again that we'll we'll get to that uh, um, that um, equality is more real when it is accepted by majorities, right? And it, it's a it's a better kind of victory, and the courts only should only step in in the most maybe egregious cases, and. And apparently only on batters of race and maybe sex discrimination. Right. I mean, and... Because and, and, those, he says, are different and not about definitions and not about those Well, that's things. what I was going to say, right? To, to make that broader theoretical point about the role of courts, which is, you know, just to, you know, uh, he's, we're about to get to the original meaning section of this. So it's, 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 very, it's very narrow, right? But in order to make that point and have it be sensible, he has to distinguish these you know the other great cases the cases that have made in the minds of the american people the supreme court a great institution loving brown he has to tell us why those cases are different you know why you know how you can't say with a straight face that we've never the supreme court has never gotten into the marriage business it has in one of the most famous cases in its entire canon right right uh, so no, and no, you no. also can't maintain that the courts never speaking more broadly that the Supreme Court's never been in the equality business, right? I mean, this is, there are some people who would say, and and I think there would be a fair bit of wisdom in in saying it um, that it, it it those are the cases where the Supreme Court has come closest to actually redeeming the entire nation and its history, right? And you know, maybe we can talk another time about you know my theory about this. I I think. The one thing courts can do, right? I, his some of his instincts, I think, here are correct. That's that the court can't be the philosopher kings who rule us all. Obviously, right? right? Obviously, right. But one thing courts can do is to be agents of rationality. Um, they can be 
agents which help other institutions get to rational answers. And sometimes that's by like taking questions away uh, from majoritarian institutions, at least for a while, right? I mean, um, and sometimes it's about moving them to the right institution to decide. And so some of his instincts here are, I think, correct. Like we should really think hard about where this decision can best be made. Yeah. But he's he's entered into an area where there's not a great theory um, of distinguishing from other cases in which the court has said, you know what, we're going to take this particular issue away. I, I, I'm getting too far afield, but let's let me go to the uh, to the next section and get your get your thoughts about this. Because so the basic question, he, as he recognizes, it is whether the equal protection clause and perhaps the due process clause recognize this kind of right of of uh, of gays to marry that cannot be um um prohibited by any contrary state enactments and so to answer that we need to kind of know what the 14th amendment means and so how do we determine this well here's what he writes in the very next sentence after the one that i just read but this is in a different section <laughs> he writes all justices past and present start their assessment of a case about the meaning of a constitutional provision by looking at how the provision was understood by the people who ratified it let me just say that again. And I'll, this time I'll skip a little bit. All justices, past and present, start their assessment by looking at how the provision was understood by the people who've ratified it. Yeah, not accurate. It's just wrong. I mean, it's just, I, I, he could say that the best way, right. right, the best way to understand the Constitution is by trying to understand what the people who wrote the words in that constitution, originally wrote those words, right. thought that they meant. You could say that. You could say that. Yeah. You could have an opinion about I think that's I mean, wrong. If, if, if what he's trying to do is state an aspiration, it, it, it might be an aspiration. Well, it is an aspiration many have. It might be the one he has. Um, but if he's trying to state, if he's trying to describe a, a, a 200 plus year historical practice, I mean, that's just flat wrong. Oh, it's absolutely wrong, and he, it, later, later <laughs> in this, it's just not. It's not even close to being correct. And 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 where he goes with this, I mean, which, he, which which means he can't. That can't be what he's saying, because he's not a foolish person. Well, he's a very smart. And he's serious trying, person. but he's trying to argue for kind of original intention originalism, right? That, that we should yeah. be looking at what the, because he makes this argument later. He says nobody in this case, however, argues that the people, the people who adopted the Fourteenth Amendment understood it to require the states to change the definition of marriage. Right, so this expected application originalism, right? Right. That you, that you interpret a constitutional phrase by how the people who wrote it, uh, and maybe the people who ratified it, um, would have thought it would apply to the facts you are now confronting. Yeah, so it's even worse right. than just kind of original intentional originalism in its kind of broadest sense, right. where you it's, might think, it's well... It's limited to expected applications. To expected applications, so it's not even that... Well, what we want to look at is what, say, the uh, 14th Amendment, the reframers of our Constitution, what, uh, what, the, what those ratifiers thought about the principles they were writing down. In right. other words, we're trying to figure out how, what this principle means for this set of facts, which they might not have anticipated, but we're going to try to look back and see what they thought about that principle. We're going to elaborate it as much as they can from the evidence, and then ask ourselves whether those elaborations of the principles contained in that clause, how those principles would apply, how that uh, elaboration would apply to this particular facts of that now that's an original intention originalism that i don't agree with right but it at least is a, a little bit more sensible than saying that when 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 the ratifiers wrote um that everyone should be afforded equal protection of the laws that they were just being kind of you know, they wanted to be brief but that was just a stand-in for the complete list of applications that they had in mind at the time 
right? Yeah, and, and that the only thing required by the provision is that list. Right. That existed in their minds at the time. Which is absolutely wrong. Because again, you know, and I'll say with with almost every point that he makes here, what about loving? Right. What about Brown versus Board of Education? Right. right. Well, we we know and, what and they you thought. Could, and you could you could say it was it was wrong on two grounds. You could say, well, you know, they wouldn't have expected it to prevent um, a public school segregation uh, because there there really wasn't there really weren't public schools of the sort we have. Yeah. In the 1950s, so of course they didn't expect it to apply to that. Um, Therefore, that's not what it requires, right? That, <laughs> it was just like, oh my god, <laughs> that's not what Brown said. <laughs> but then he makes a, but then he makes a point which I think is directly in conflict with this point. So he goes on to talk about how tradi- how tradition reinforces the point, and talking about how only months ago the Supreme Court decided a couple of cases that are that that teach in this direction. Those cases we've talked about on this show, Town of Greece and the Noel Canning case, right? And from those, he says that. Uh, uh, the, the the court upheld that the what he says the customary practice of opening legislative meetings with prayer alone uh, i'm sorry the customary practice of opening legislative meetings with prayer alone proves the constitutional permissibility of legislative prayer quite apart from how that practice might fare under the most up to date establishment clause test in other words regardless of the original meeting meaning regardless of the original intended applications the fact that people have done something for a long time and it's a tr- and it's a long standing tradition right. is evidence of its constitutionality which is a now, quite different argument it's a it's a contradictory argument right because it, it it begins with the premise that we don't need to worry about what their original expected applications were right so which is bizarre because he just made the other point he just yeah. made the other point so you know both of those cannot be true in their fullest expression. He's given us kind of two techniques for understanding the constitutionality of a practice. One is by saying, well, have we been doing it for a long time? If so, that's strong evidence of his constitutionality. The other is, let me look back in the minds of the framers, maybe by reading diaries and stuff, and try to figure <laughs> out like what they thought equality meant. And, and when I do that, I find that, you know, I'm not going to cite any evidence, of course, right. about what they actually thought. You know, we're looking at the, the diaries of John Bingham. Is John Bingham, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, to figure out what Bingham thought about homosexuality. Um, we certainly didn't, you know, there's, I don't, I don't even know what to say about this. It, it, to me, it's, again, these are kind of separately good points in a way. I, I, good, not that I necessarily agree with, at least the part about like original intention. I mean, that, should that play a role? It's an interesting conversation. He writes it kind of well, but yeah. these are two things that don't fit together. And at least and are, we're not, at least we're no longer in the territory of, of, postulating that the judiciary doesn't engage in judicial review like at least we've left that behind yeah. thank heaven so we're actually purporting to interpret a constitutional provision to find out what whether or not state law is consistent with it or inconsistent with it so we're at least doing that that's a that's a good change i guess but then yeah. <laughs> but but the but the the argumentation here and and how we go about determining that is is yeah not hanging together very well so we in this section i think not having any idea of the kind of evidence that he plans to cite to back up the claim that there is no constitutional right to gay marriage. I mean, uh, at least from the first part, I expect to see evidence about things that the framers of the 14th Amendment thought about this particular issue. And yet, I don't think you'll find that anywhere in this opinion. No, no, I think he just assumes that they didn't, uh, that they, that they probably didn't like gays at all, uh, or, or had antipathy toward, uh, gays and certainly had no uh desire to put in place uh, or to allow gay marriage i think he just assumes that sure yeah uh so then we get to rational basis review all right so let's 
coming in now having no method let's apply the method we don't have uh to decide whether there's a rational basis for um for what the states have done here and you remember from posner's opinion this is the go figure opinion right he finds absolutely no rational basis and in the course of doing so actually puts forward a very interesting pragmatic test because of course he's coming at it from the side of pragmatism an interesting kind of pragmatic test for constitutionality which is quite different than the levels of scrutiny that the court has typically used true and so what is he 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 really starts with two he really cites two possible rational bases uh the first is um that restricting it to marriages between men and women is not and in fact defining marriage altogether is not done in order to what he says to regulate love but to regulate sex most especially the intended and unintended effects of male-female intercourse. And so, in other words, it's there to answer all kinds of questions which might otherwise be difficult about what happens when people have children accidentally. Yes, like like, the unintended pregnancy theory. Who's responsible for the resulting children? How many mates can people have? He says, how how does one decide which sets of mates is responsible for which sets of children? And then he makes this claim that we rarely think about these questions nowadays shows only how far we have come. In other words, the definition of marriage has been successful in leading to a society in which we rarely think about these questions because we've kind of internalized expectations about procreative sexuality through marriage what joe (laughs) what yeah what did posner say i think posner said go figure (laughs) about that right yeah it's yeah you can you almost imagine there was these yes the i mean remember in the 1600s when all the you know the learned fathers gathered together to have the great unintended pregnancies debate (laughs) and someone came up with oh oh my gosh i have it i have it We'll, we'll call this thing uh, m- 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 marriage, and uh, and it will be a way to channel people together. Right. Uh, it's a bizarre. It's sort of like a bizarre claim about the the state of nature. Yeah, and he he says you know um, that people may well need the government's encouragement to create and maintain stable relationships within within which children may flourish. And for a conservative who's otherwise very skeptical about. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> uh, I find that kind of remarkable that, you know, you think that this is the government needs to get deeply involved in sexual relationships in, because without, without that involvement, people just wouldn't be able to make this work. Yeah. I, it's, um, now, again, if it's true rational basis review, as the Supreme Court has defined it, we don't require much rationality. Yeah, it's any imaginable purpose. Any imaginable, which is it all legitimate and has the like oh, the barest, the, most threadbare notion of like reasonableness. Although the sense in which I, I do think there's an unexpressed uh, uh, move here, because I think you do have to ask the further question: since the since the challenge in this case is a challenge to someone's being excluded from marriage, not included in marriage, um, then I think you have to ask: okay even if there is that rational basis for providing marriage to opposite-sex couples, how is that purpose advanced by excluding same-sex couples from that same arrangement? And he deals with that a little bit in the opinion by saying under rational basis review, we don't care if it, like, could have done more or could have done less. And that's that's where he opposes disagreeing. But I don't think that's... And and I think that's actually a valid point within rational basis review. A legislature doesn't act less validly when it decides to tackle part of a problem rather than all of a problem. Right. I think that's quite right. And there are many cases that say that. I don't think that actually 
is responsive to the to the problem I just raised, right? Because it's it's yes, it's I'm, not we're not talking. Right. It's the, the the flaw isn't oh you just solved part of the problem. The, you've just explained what you you say the problem is. It's the unintended pregnancies parenting problem. Okay, how does making sure that same sex couples don't enter into marriage advance that goal? Right. I mean, this is it's a, yes, and it doesn't actually advance it at all unless you take the further step of saying marriage will be less appealing to opposite sex couples if it's a thing. Same-sex couples can also do. I, I this is the show. That's not be, laid out by the majority, but it has to be there implicitly. Yeah. I think the show's called Oral Argument, and I can't find anything to argue with you about there. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't you really think that's? I, an I think that's. Move? I think that's right. I also think it's a matter of framing that that the the challenge here comes from states' kind of refusal, and in fact, in a number of states, relatively recent reaffirmances of the exclusion of gays from this institution. Right. So what's really being challenged here is the states obstinate refusal it's saying marriage is for us and not for you and and, and this, this is the same kind of thing we talked about in town of greece that that guido calabresi mentioned this conception correct. of equality right it's a, it's about defining who we are in order to show how we are different from you so i can understand why this um the unintended pregnancy problem um uh, and marriage as a solution to that problem for opposite sex couples i can imagine that as being a great argument made on behalf of a state if the thing being challenged were a state statute that obliged uh, opposite-sex couples to marry. Yeah. As a violation of their liberty. Yeah. Let's say the state statute said, if two people who are of the opposite sex engage in sexual intercourse yeah, just like and a, a pregnancy a, results, a very, they are required thereafter to marry. A very aggressive common-law marriage kind of idea, right? Because common-law marriage was there saying if you cohabitate for a certain right, period, it's like be, adverse possession of a marriage. But you'd be obliged, and, right? If you weren't right, cohabiting, yeah. you'd have to start cohabiting. You're, you'd be obliged right. to marry. You, you would just have person, it kick in right away. And if a person who didn't yeah. want to be ob- so obliged brought a challenge and said that violates my liberty uh, right. to oblige me to do that, um, then this argument, well, but it's, it's rational for the state to oblige you to do it because they're trying to support this institution, which ultimately right. redounds to the benefit of the children right. reared in these arrangements. Right. Right. So that it's like that would be a responsive argument, but here it's not because you're not obliging; you're excluding. Especially as Posner says, if you are already willing to say that same-sex couples can rear children by you know they can adopt children and they can raise them, right? Uh, then if if that is your concern about providing stable relationships for children, that is completely, you know, it, it, it is uh, the complete, it's the entire, it, it's opposite of your uh, stated purpose when you exclude such couples who are in fact raising children from the institution that you believe stabilizes that nurturing, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it, those, you can't have both, right? Either you uh, but 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 two again. This is an argument which could have been interposed in loving, uh, in a way, right? The, the argument would have been a little bit different, but would have said that um, uh, that we want to add government weight behind relationships in order to make them stable for raising children. And people discriminate against. In fact, people discriminate, and kids of. And this is the argument that Virginia made: kids raised in mixed race. Uh, relationships fared worse 
right. partly because of maybe, you know, at that time, some racist conceptions of inherent problems with such relationships, but also because of society's views of the, and that would have been a, you know, in that, but for the fact that it's totally invalid, <laughs> right, <laughs> might, might have been taken as the barely kind of threadbare rational basis for the state to say, you know what, we don't, we want to encourage stable relationships and this would not do that. Now, the other, the other ground, Joe, is just Burkean conservatism, right? This yeah, is the idea. Wait. That, and he says, right, a state might wish to wait and see before changing a norm that yeah. our society, like all others, has accepted for centuries. So slow. Um, and he says, 11 years later, this is after the, Massachu- the Massachusetts kind of started this with their judicial decision uh, as a matter of state law uh, that gay marriage was required. They said, 11 years later, the clock is not run on assessing the benefits and burdens of expanding the definition of marriage. 11 years, indeed, is not even the right timeline, he goes on. But, of course, you know, Posner deals with this, too, because this would be an argument for any, against any change. I mean, maybe there's some rule about time. 11 years is not long enough. I don't know what it would be, but um, th- you could use this against, this could have been used in Brown versus Board. This could have been used in Loving, right? It seems so. Right, because you could have pointed to, you could have said, well, you know, there are some states that allow uh, children of different races to be educated together. Um, but you you want to force states to do it that don't that haven't made that decision yet, right? And there just hasn't been enough time to see what really happens. Yeah, well, or you know, there you know there are some states where people who are white and people who are black can use the same swimming pool, but. You know, over here, they haven't reached that decision yet. And there just isn't enough. We haven't had enough time to see what happens when you let people do that. And, and indeed, that is, the, that is the philosophy at the core of Plessy against Ferguson, right? That um, we don't know what the social interactions will be between the races. And that needs to be given time to develop uh, based on the voluntary interactions of, of people of different races. And the last thing we want to do is like, enforce that from a governmental level let's let that you know that needs to cook a little while longer yeah law isn't really it doesn't really have any power to advance that right state of affairs and that's what and 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 look i don't know what's in judge sutton's heart of hearts he may well support and and like i mentioned to you yesterday like if if i were inclined to write this kind of opinion for structural reasons i would likely say were and this is what i would probably write you know if i were asked to vote on this issue in my state I would vote in favor of gay marriage, but that is not the question before me. Instead, I am asked to cast a vote which will, which will prohibit the votes of all of my fellow citizens, and that I'm not willing to do. I could see that kind of argument, right? right. But, but what he's uh, done here, I mean, this is by, by writing this opinion in this way, this, this is, I, I, you know, I asked a few, like, who wants to write Plessy versus Ferguson? No one wants to write that, and that's why I doubted that we would have an appellate court come out this way. Who wants to be remembered as the, as the judge or justice who wrote Plessy? And this is kind of that opinion, right? I mean, again, I'm I'm not looking into his heart of hearts because he may well favor gay marriage. So I'm not saying that he's a racist in the way I suspect the justices were there. I mean, that's not at all what I'm saying. Right. The problem for me isn't that it sounds like Plessy. The problem for me is I don't understand the way in which these arguments, uh, if they have some force here, wouldn't have caused all these other cases to have yeah. to come out the other way. Right. And, I, and that's, a, that's an indication that it is not actually valid reasoning. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I mean, Plessy, the, the majority in Plessy took the view that 
that it would be illegitimate for government. I mean, you look at some of the language in there. It would be illegitimate for any institution of government to try to force individuals together racially, right, uh, to mix racially. Including popular votes. Including presumably. popular votes. And, 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 and Judge Sutton is really talking about a conception of democracy, which says that if, if people are going to decide to be more just toward one another— that, it's a legislative that matter. Could not a, legislative, not right? a so matter, that could be legislative, right? So it's a quite co- different argument. It could be coercive, right? He he lets you know he he gives some um, credence to the idea that coercion would be okay here, but that it needs to be democratically accountable coercion instead right. of judicially imposed. Um, yeah, that's the spoonful of sugar that helps that medicine go down, right? The fact that it was it was popularly chosen, yeah, right. It wouldn't it wouldn't have to be unanimously popularly chosen. There could right. be some people who would be upset about it. That's why you use the word medicine. <laughs> but the sugar would be, I got to vote on it. And so did all my fellow citizens. And you, you, you win some and you lose some. All right. A couple more things I want to ask you about. Okay. So as we know, post-Romer, you know, in, in the Supreme Court's recent history of looking at issues involving gays, uh, the Supreme Court has, has always used the so-called rational basis test. But it really has been a kind of rational basis plus. They've never gone so far as to say that we will strictly scrutinize or even in an intermediate way scrutinize legislative enactments that have the effect of harming gays or that even are intended to harm gays. However, in Romer, Kennedy begins this line of cases suggesting that if we can only conclude that animus was behind the enactment, that animus against gays was behind the enactment, well, that's not a legitimate purpose. And so, no, you know, even if we could say that there's a rational basis uh, for uh, the means chosen to pursue that purpose, that law is unconstitutional because that purpose is just bad, right? Yeah. And so the question is, is it motivated by animus? And there have been a number of cases where the Supreme Court and maybe others have concluded that laws uh, um, uh, which are harmful to gays have been motivated by that. You know, we should link to um, the, yeah. this, um, I think it was SCOTUS blog. That ha- that recently had a sort of a written like a paper symposium on animus, yeah, and as a as a theory of, of oh yeah, definitely. Review. I'll link that up. Let's link that up because that was a really good series of of posts. Yeah, it's, and this animus thing is it's pretty slippery. It's it's hard to it is. But here here's my problem. I want I'm going to get your take on this because what Judge Sutton has to overcome is the or what he feels like he needs to argue against is the idea that this wave of referenda which. Uh, occurred alongside, I think it was the 2004 mm-hmm. elections, and I think also the 2006 uh, midterms, um, where states had basically rebanned gay marriage or or bolstered it by adding it to their state constitutions. And there's a lot of suspicion that this was partly to try to you know to try to turn out uh, the conservative vote. There, you know, lots of it, that may not have been effective. We don't need to get into any of that. But for whatever reason, there was a wave of these things um, post uh, Massachusetts and. You know, what Judge Sutton says is that's totally explicable because voters were worried because of the judicial uh, opinion in Massachusetts, right? They didn't want the judiciary to take away from them the power to do this, and so they wanted to change their state constitutions. But let me put that to one side for a second and just um, uh, here's what he says, right? That these uh, decisions to place the definition of marriage in a state's constitution uh, wasn't unusual, nor did it otherwise convey the kind of malice or unthinking prejudice the constitution prohibits. He talks about how 19 states did the same thing as the states under consideration here. And if there was one concern animating the initiatives, it was fear that the courts would seize control over an issue that people of good faith care deeply about. If that is animus, the term has no useful meaning. And I wrote an expletive in the, in the margin. Um, 
to say that it has no useful meaning, I, and then he goes on to talk about, like, you know, um, uh, what, what might have motivated them and basically saying, how can we possibly know what was in the hearts and minds of people voting? There are people who had uh, deep uh, religious convictions. Uh, he said that their, their preferences, the number of people who voted to support each initi- initiative, 2.7 million in Michigan, 1.2 million in Kentucky, 3.3 million in Ohio, 1.4 million in Tennessee, was large and surely diverse, he says. The quote he says, surely diverse. They can't all have had one mind. Um, uh, Which sounds right. I mean, it sounds right that they... I'm sure weren't all thinking the same thing. Of course not. He says the truth of why they did what they did is assuredly complicated, making it impossible to pin down any one consideration as opposed to a rough aggregation of factors. What do we want to say about this, Joe? Uh, you know, I think his conclusion is that they, that maybe these voters were motivated by the rational bases he's already identified. You know, and maybe. Um, and I think. And look, I, you know, the 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 animus theory of of unconstitutionality is something that that isn't as well specified in these decisions it romer lawrence windsor um and so here if anywhere a person could be forgiven for for um ranging farther and for for trying out different ways of articulating the idea what the idea requires what it demands what it does not demand why i mentioned that scotus blog uh yeah series of posts about it Animus is a tricky, slippery thing. Uh, at least that's what how it strikes me. And um, I, I mean, it seemed to me to be centrally about um, the if the if the best ex maybe one way to put it would be if the if the thing that seems to best explain the adoption of the measure is a general public sentiment desiring to impose a disability on a group yeah to exclude a group to subordinate a group if that's the best explanation for the full texture of what happened that's improper yeah right not that it has to be what most people thought what every single person thought um even what any given person thought but if if you look at the total sum of facts like what explains what happened yeah and if the best explanation for what happened is Generally, the desire to impose this less than status on a particular group of people because they're viewed as less than, then that, that, that's the problem. Well, he's, yes, and, and he says in, in, in Romer and City of Kleber in this other case that, that when you look at the set of possible reasons, only that reason remained, right? And that's why the court came out the way right. that it did in those cases. Whereas, you know, here... He says, you know, so there was no such, like, legitimate explanation in those cases other than animus. And here's what he says. He says, plenty exist here, as shown above and as recognized by many others. And then he has a string site of, of other courts saying, hey, there are plenty of reasons. But what are those plenty of reasons? They're the two that he mentioned. Let's wait. Let's wait, which is not, you know, again, why do you want to wait? Well, okay, so that reason's gone. <laughs> Let's look at the other reason, right? The The other reason is... This one that you know Posner criticizes as as uh, ridiculous, the go figure reason. Um, so to say there are plenty when they're in fact at most he's mentioned two, and then he mentions other courts which say there are plenty, but all they say is that there are plenty without mentioning what those reasons are. The problem is all of the reasons, all of these plenty, most of these plenty of reasons are the kinds in the concurrence in Bowers which one can no longer utter in polite company, right? 
at most there are these kind of abstract reasons about helping stable families, blah, 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 blah. Right. Reasons which run headlong into, into loving and into problems of logic if they don't run headlong into loving. Yeah, you agree? I mean, I, mean, I, I well, uh, basically, I do, um, and I think that there's. I mean, clearly, there's, there's, there's something going on here too with, with, um, with the fact that some of that belief about why you know, let's wait, this doesn't seem right, uh, let's go slowly. To the degree that that is uh, overlaps with a particular commitment in a in a in a religious faith, um, that. This is improper, immoral, etc. Yeah. Right. Um, that I think he's 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 trying to. He seems to me to want very much to say that those sincerely held religious beliefs about the lesser status of gay and lesbian people is is not animus. Yeah. Um, and that's a really that's we're in a tough area, right? Because. Are, we do have a, a, an, a vitally important constitutional tradition about religious freedom of conscience and religious liberty. Um, but we also have an important tradition about not creating different castes of citizenship. Right. And the two are coming into a, a little bit of a clash here. Well, and, and Perhaps. Re- and figuring right. out your way through that maze is not going to be easy. Right. I don't think he's managed it. And we have a history in the civil rights era with at least some groups of people saying that they have very religious reasons for wanting to impose a caste. Right? Correct. I mean, this is that you can track exactly the same arguments as Bill Eskridge has done uh, yeah. that have been made both religiously and secularly for uh, gay marriage as you can for um, uh, racial rights. Correct. Rights of racial equality. That's um, why I'm saying this is sort of a, this is sort of a minefield. Yes. Um, and so I and I and so I'm not I don't criticize him for not having a route through the minefield, um, but it it is a little odd to suggest that we're not standing in the middle of one. Let me Cause, ask because it is sort of what it looks like. Let to me. Me, yes, and let me ask you to pass on what he says most directly about loving because this is where he gets to loving. This is maybe the heart of it. He says, "How?" Do, and this is about whether loving was about a fundamental right to marry. And this is just a, you know, this is a bridge, this is a kind of abridging the fundamental right to marry of, yeah. of gay people. He says, had a gay African male and a gay Caucasian male been denied a marriage license in Virginia in 1968, would the Supreme Court have held that Virginia had violated the 14th Amendment? No one to our knowledge thinks so, and no justice to our knowledge has ever said so. The denial of the license would have turned not on the races of the applicants, but on a request to change the definition of marriage. Had loving meant something more when it pronounced marriage a fundamental right, how could the court hold in Baker five years later that gay marriage does not even raise a substantial federal question? And here it is. Loving addressed and rightly corrected an unconstitutional eligibility requirement for marriage. It did not create a new definition of marriage. That seems to me just sophistry. I mean, I, I don't... I, he's correct, of course, that if, 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 the, uh, if the, the loving couple had both been male or both been female... They, it, the court never, but never would heard the case. But that's because, of course, this was a court even before Bowers, right? That did not believe in the equality of gay people. Gay people, as a political, a legal political judgment, were not considered to be part of the community of equals. So much so, not a part of the community of equals that their uh, private sexual conduct could be criminalized, right. and you could be imprisoned for it. Um, that argument is no longer available. Uh, right. And, and but anyway, I don't understand. I don't understand the difference between an eligibility requirement and a definitional element. Do you? 
No. Okay. This is... Is there something we're going to argue about here, Joe? <laughs> I mean, I understand it at the level of you can say... You, 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 can, you can say there's two different ways to frame it, but I don't think that it helps you because you can frame both things the same way rather than frame one one way and one the other. And when you do that, when you put them on the same footing, then why you wouldn't treat them legally the same is, becomes much harder to determine. And yeah. he doesn't seem to be grappling with that. Instead, it's this, it, it's, um, it's, it says, oh, you know, this is, this is just about categorizing it correctly. Right. Oh, and, that, that was that kind of thing. This is this kind of thing. Like, no, not really, because you could put eat both in the same box without any problem. Yeah. No, that, that's right. And, and, and he goes further. And he, They're and both eligibility cases. They're both definition right. cases. And, and, but he wants, to, he wants strongly to distinguish them. Yeah. And, and then, and then uh, goes on to say that, hey, if we decided that, that any kind of uh, redefinition of marriage got heightened scrutiny under the 14th Amendment, um, then the states would lose all their power to define marriage because then Congress could regulate it under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, their power to enforce the Equal Protection Clause and the other terms of the 14th Amendment. And, like, does he not think that Loving already opened that door? And what makes him think that Congress would choose to displace state regulations that don't actually involve uh, uh, matters of equality? I, I just don't... Do you see that at all? No. Okay. Are we going to argue about anything else, or should we? We're getting close they, to being able to end the show. I they think they also trot out. Uh, he trots out the sort of oh, then then the what about polygamy? Um, yes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and the, the point about polygamy, and we're we're almost to the end of the opinion here. But the point about polygamy, I think, is odd. And and yeah, he says, um, uh, and if it did, meaning that it reached this, how would the constitutional? as opposed to policy arguments in favor of same-sex same marriage not apply to plural marriage, right? This is like there's, there'd be no stopping it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they shouldn't. Like may, maybe, I don't know, may, maybe allowing plural marriage is, is a bad idea. But I don't think you have to work so hard to distinguish them. I mean, maybe it's a good idea. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not con- sold on this. But um, how many, like, struggling young people who are like, kind of struggling with their identity as pluralists Right, their inherent idea, identity as pluralist are there. I mean, it. I, you know, I, I get that people may have re, you know religious feelings that they should engage in plural marriages, and those are worthy of you know right. at least respect. Um, uh, and maybe balanced against other things. I don't know, but you know, no one is born a pluralist, are they, Joe? Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe we don't know enough to know that people are born <laughs> struggling with this thing, right? And and right. maybe that'll be for future generations to realize how. Um, Maybe how barbarous I am for not recognizing, you know, people's inherent idea identities as, as pluralists. But all I can do is to recognize what I see now, and that's that that a law which prevents gays from marrying stamps people who are fundamentally a particular way with a badge of inferiority. Right. Right. And that's. I don't see that, at least from my vantage point, with plural marriages. I see uh, maybe discrimination against certain kinds of religious understandings of marriage, and maybe that's something to look at. And maybe he's raised a good point. We haven't gone far enough. Yeah, um, maybe. This is, the, this is the last and the big point. I think it would be worth going over again. Um, and this is the I mean, way at he, this point, I'm not a listener anymore. He essentially... Uh, <laughs> 
this is his core idea, I think, where he's talking about just the benefits of using legislation and letting people get together in their states and, and kind of ratify a social understanding. Right, right. Rather so we're than coming back judges. around full circle to the premise that this is about change. This isn't a case involving people's individual claims. This is a, this is a just, this is an exercise about change. Right. And so what's the judicial role? What's the legislative role? And we're going to overturn two centuries of the practice of judicial review. Hit, hit me. Isn't the goal to create a culture in which a majority of citizens dignify and respect the rights of minority groups through majoritarian laws rather than through decisions issued by a majority of Supreme Court justices. It's dangerous and demeaning to this citizenry to assume that we, meaning the judiciary, and only we can fairly understand the arguments for and against gay marriage. That would be that would be demeaning if that's what recognizing this 14th Amendment claim meant. Right. But to me, this is the most... That isn't what it means. Therefore, right. no, it's not demeaning. This is... Well, right. I mean, these are longstanding <laughs> commitments that we've enacted through constitutional amendment, and, and this is one institutional mechanism we use for resolving these problems about how to live together. And there's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, to suggest as he does, uh, that there is something fundamentally wrong with deciding things in this way, is directly to repudiate Loving and Brown. I mean, that's exactly what Loving and Brown did, was to make judgments about racial equality right. that were binding on particular public institutions. It sure seems that way to me. I mean, it, it problematizes a, 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 a set of um, events involving judicial review of popular legislation that gets struck down on the ground that it can't be sustained given our constitutional commitments, it problematizes them in a very profound way. Better in this instance, we think, and here's the last line of the whole opinion, better in this instance, we think, to allow change through the customary political processes in which the people, gay and straight alike, become the heroes of their own stories by meeting each other, not as adversaries in a court system, but as fellow citizens seeking to resolve a new social issue in a fair-minded way. And this is where, again, it's not the same as Plessy, but it gets very close to that idea, right? That it's not for the judiciary to force people together, right? It's for people to make up their own minds about that. He at least, you know, leaves open the possibility of democratic coercion on this issue, right? But, um, and, and the, you know, the funny thing is, part of me hears that and thinks, you know, yeah, it would be better if the world were better. <laughs> right. Better is better than not better. Right. I totally agree. Right. Um, but boy, are we far afield from a judge's job, right? A job, Judge Sutton, that you agreed to take. And here's the job. People bring claims under law and you adjudicate them. Right. You don't scold them for being adversarial with someone else. Right. You know, you're acting awfully adversary. Yes, I'm in a courthouse. I, I came here to bring my claim. I right. asked. They said no. So now I'm here right. to press my legal claim. Isn't it your job to adjudicate my legal claim rather than complaining that I had the temerity to bring it? And to say that like, no, one, you know, no one's ever complained in this way before, therefore you lose automatically. This is a longstanding practice, therefore you lose. I mean, all such, all such claims are novel the first time they're brought. Right? Good point. And... Uh, so yeah, this just doesn't seem like a particularly, um, I mean, it sounds good maybe on the 
on the first read, but it's, boy, does it really not stand up to scrutiny. Yeah, I think that's, to, to me, that's, it's, it, you know, as, as, as a broader matter, I don't know, is it better that, that there's an opinion like this and we go to the Supreme Court and we get a resolution? Would it be better if we went through more state legislatures and did less of this through the courts? You know, maybe. That, that, but I think there's been enough of that now. I think there have been enough states which have done this, and there have been enough judgments which have been accepted in, through, the, uh, through the judiciary in various states that, like, that work of consolidating a new opinion has mainly been done. Yeah. It's time for the mopping up. I mean, I is he trying you know? to say they don't have Article Three standing? Clearly not. Right. Um, well, okay. If, if this is a real case or controversy, this is a live dispute under law between real parties— yeah, he's just saying that there's that the that the you know that the I mean it's there's some connection with the originalist method and original intentions. It's a kind of a grab bag of ideas that basically the Fourteenth Amendment does not include this right, right? Um, it somehow includes a right to marry between races that states can't interfere with, but it doesn't include a right of gay marriage. And he concludes that from you know despite the opinion's length, very very conclusory observations about history. Um, yeah, but he's you know he's certainly correct that in the minds of the ratifiers there was no right to gay marriage. Um, uh, of course, I, well, I think in the minds thing. of the ratifiers, the word "gay" would not have itself have made any sense. Right. There was, but in the minds of the ratifiers, I think there was no right to interracial marriage. Of course, there was no right to uh, interracial uh, education. Correct. Um, there was no right to a lot of things that we now understand the principle of equality. Right. in that amendment to require no no, no, no right for uh, women to have uh, equal rights under law yeah right? i think i think under his understanding if 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 the document if we knew in advance that the document the constitution would only stand for the specific applications that were either written down or in the minds of the framers right. then it would very soon start to look like one of these really awful constitutions that includes every right under the sun you know the right to fish you know, the right to do this, the right to do that. Yeah. It would have to enumerate a bunch of stuff. And if that approach had actually been used for any length of time in our history, um, it, our constitution, yeah, this is, I guess this is just the point you just made. Our constitution would already be unrecognizable because it would have been amended like a bajillion times. It would look like the United States Code. Right. I mean, you know, not to the same extent, but that would be... From which I, from which I draw the lesson that that's not actually how it's been interpreted. No. Of course not. <laughs> I mean, this is actually a sure sign that its methodology is not the one we've been using. Right. And if, if originalism is interesting, and I actually think it is, I mean, there's a lot of, that that kind of approach can teach us about understanding documents. It's not the approach that I have. Uh, I'm also not a living constitutionalist, as most people understand that term. But, but, I, but I think the method has interesting things to teach us uh, about. But if it's interesting... It's because of how it, how it sheds light on what various principles might mean as we adapt them to our situations today. And this is just an obstinate refusal, I think, even to give the principle the meaning that it had when it was applied in Loving and in Brown, much less to consider how, what that principle says about us in our, in our current context. Um, I don't know. I found it really, certainly... It, I was gonna originally it was a depressing end to the week. Mm. That was until we got the kick in the crotch from the Supreme Court <laughs> in the in the in the Grant and the Obamacare case, and and then we got the further kick in the crotch when the uh, yeah. when our recording kind of crapped out on us. Yeah. So I don't know, you know Joe. Pe- we didn't sh- we didn't disagree much this week. We didn't. People should read the case. Yeah. Um. 
The Supreme Court's going to take up marriage equality now much sooner than we might have thought. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, these arguments for completely reconceptualizing the nature of American Judicial Review have now been put on the record yeah. by a judge. Yeah. Uh, and they could be considered along with everything else. Yeah. Which is, you know, part of the purpose of the Courts of Appeals, I, I guess. I don't, I don't think the Supreme Court will completely reconceptualize and revolutionize the nature of judicial review. Right. I don't think that will happen in this case. What do you think? What do you think? 5-4 or you think 6-3? In terms of what? The, how the Supreme Court will resolve this. Um, the, the Windsor case and the, and the California case suggests this will be a very sharply divided court. Yeah, I, I'm thinking 6-3. Okay. I think Roberts comes over with Kennedy. Uh, I don't see that happening, but you're right. It could could be, could be. And so, so one other one other question. And we mentioned this in uh, I think um, when we talked yesterday. But uh, there's been some debate on Twitter about when this could be heard at the earliest. So supposing that the Sixth Circuit, as you argued, will not take this in bank, uh, and or the parties won't ask for it. But anyway, the Supreme Court grants cert before any of that happens, and that's just what what occurs. Um, there was some suggestion that if they didn't take cert. If they don't, if they don't take it like either this coming week or the next, they would have to add new argument dates to hear it. Otherwise, it would have to be heard next term. And then other people were saying, well, they would just add new argument dates. They're going to hear it this term. Um, but there's some confusion about whether it can actually fit in the calendar. And I haven't, I've had zero chance to really catch up, catch my breath, and, and figure this out. But uh, do you think they'll hear it this term? And because um, if they wait another term, that's yet another year of people living under gay marriage and finding out that the world is not ending, and more and more people knowing realizing that they know more gay people and it just gets harder and harder to write i think the anti-gay marriage opinion the more time well, now that by. now that there's a court of appeals for the sixth circuit that has definitively said that in these states the states are are constitutionally permitted to prohibit full marriage quality i i would now like the thing resolved sooner rather than later because people are actually suffering yeah. in those states i mean and actual course, people and actual families right. are being harmed and in a way that won't be uh, uh, remedied in, unless the Supreme Court overturns it. And of course, look, I mean, the Supreme Court m- might conclude that the Constitution does not require marriage equality. It is not yeah. a foregone conclusion that the plaintiffs below these private persons, that it's not a foregone conclusion that they win. No, yeah. I, I think it's, so. to me, it's inconceivable, though, especially after the cert denials. I, I, I just don't see... I, I do. My I point absolutely is, do not I, I would like it. it. I would. I would. I, my personal preference would be now that this split has occurred, take it right away. It would get it be done as that soon it as be possible. resolved sooner rather than yeah. later. But that doesn't mean that's what they'll do, or, or even because in our discussion with Anthony, in our discussion with Anthony Christ, we mentioned how the the cert denials, if they just kept happening, might be the fastest way to get marriage equality to more places. Yes. Right. But now that the Supreme Court has done this, it's it's like I'm sorry. Now that this has happened and the Supreme Court is likely to grant cert, that's going to put a freeze on everything until this is resolved. Right, right. That's true too. Um, and so you want that process to happen as soon as it can because you know, and it's easy to for, it's easy to forget if you're not in it or know somebody who's in the middle of a, a of something where marriage is important right. um, for a particular reason that actual people are being harmed by this. Yeah, these uh, are people's families. Right. And so it's, you know, it's hospital visitation, it's like, you know, right. estates, all these very practical problems, um, not to mention just the dignitary interests, which are, you know, which you might otherwise be willing to kind of wait on to get it done in the right way or what have you. But those are, you know, it's, these are real things. Yep. 
All right. Anything else? Nope. You wanted to be done an hour ago, didn't you? Yep. <laughs> Are we going to do this again? Is this our nope. last show? Yep. Oh, you know what I mentioned yesterday, Joe? Final episode. You, you know what I mentioned it's yesterday? It's been a good ride. This is, this is definitely going to make you want to say that um, this is our final episode. Did you hear we were up for a Peabody? <laughs> you know what? I think that should be our title for this episode this week. Up for a Peabody. Because <laughs> in the sense that you and I are up for it. Like, I'm up for that. I'm on board with that. <laughs> there, yeah, there are, there are, there are, there are many, um, there are many senses in which we're up for a Peabody. <laughs> the only sense in which we, we are not up for a Peabody is the sense in which anyone would want to be we, up we, for one. We are, we are not up for one in that sense. In the sense that we are likely actually to receive one. We're being considered for one. Oh, of course we're being considered. We're under consideration. You are, because you are presently considering it? I just think that we're among the things that could get a Peabody. We exist. <laughs> and in that sense, we could receive a Peabody. I got Up bu- for a Peabody is our title for this week. <laughs> that is my, that's my humble plea. We're now done.